It's a joy today to have a friend and uh, a former boss and a soon-to-be boss again of mine, Dr. Steve Pettit. Um, When Christy and I were first married uh, back in 2000, one of our first bosses was Dr. Steve Pettit. He was one of the co-directors, I guess, with Marty Heron and then working with Jeff Call in the summer camp at Northland years ago. And so from that very first month of our marriage, we have been under the influence of Dr. Steve Pettit. And it is a joy for me to introduce him to some of you who may not know him and to welcome him back. Others of you will remember his ministry at Bethany Hills years ago and, uh, and his ministry even to our young people. A number of us have our, our students down at the university. Uh, so Brother Steve, would you come? Would you preach the word, brother? Yes, sir. Well, good morning. Good to see you today. Uh, you know, coming to a service on a Sunday morning is, is preceded by Saturday and Friday. You understand what I'm saying? And so as we came here this morning, I was thinking of what has preceded the last two days. What's preceded the last two days in your life? Uh, Friday, I worked all day long and didn't, didn't really eat at all until I got home Friday evening and my wife uh, had not prepared a meal. It was leftovers. And so I heated it up and ate it and made a mistake. My wife has, I like hot sauce, anything that's hot I like. And so uh, this is something we had purchased from Trader Joe's. You ever heard of Trader Joe's? It's called Perry Perry. It's a hot sauce, and I dumped it all over uh, this, this uh, it basically it was a cabbage roll that my wife had made. And about 11 o'clock, I got a pain in my stomach. And that pain stayed in my stomach until 6 o'clock in the morning, and I didn't sleep all night long. I finally got to sleep yesterday at 6 o'clock, and I woke up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I don't think I've ever done that my whole life. And I stumbled around the house. I didn't eat a thing. And I went to bed at 7.30 last night and I woke up at 5.50 this morning. That was yesterday for me. So I haven't eaten pastor since Friday. So I'm excited about preaching a short sermon and going to eat, <laughs> eat lunch. <laughs> the reason I tell you that, because you never know what a day brings forth. And then my wife asked me early this morning, she said, are you really going to Raleigh today? I said, yes, I'm going to Raleigh. She says, well, it's really windy outside. I said, well, I understand that. So we got to the airport this morning very early, and the group was there, and they were sitting on the plane. School has a plane. That's how we get around. And uh, I said, well, we probably need to pray. And we took off, and uh, it was bumpy. It was really bumpy. And I said, just imagine you're on a roller coaster. And that was my advice I had. So this morning, uh, we've come in with... Uh, being in bed all day long and roller coaster rides, so we're happy to be here. And we're here for such a time as this. So we take it as the Lord's will that we're here this morning. And, uh, and then I was also, you, maybe, I don't know if any of you were around at the time, but I may have been the first evangelist that ever spoke at this church. Your church was founded in 1986. And I'm going to guess it was about 1988 that my wife and I and my little girls, uh, Rebecca and Rachel, who are now 40 and 38, 
uh, came to your church to hold a week-long uh, revival meeting when this church was meeting in a school in the area before it ever built its building at Bethany Hills. And so I have a fairly long-standing history with your church, and here I am today at such a time as this. So we'll take it again from the Lord at His will, and then hopefully that the message will be exactly what uh, God wants us all to hear today as we look into His Word. So thank you for the privilege for being here. These are students from Bob Jones University. Uh, who uh, there's a variety of groups that travel with me on the weekends. I go out every weekend and we take the group with us. And so uh, we have a table set up. Do we have a table set up in the lobby? Of the, oh, is it over in the other building? Okay. And uh, we'll, we'll go over there in a little bit. But uh, these are wonderful young people who uh, have committed their lives to live for the Lord and at the same time get an outstanding education at Bob Jones University. I'll say more about that later. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. And what I'd like to do this morning <clears throat> is to zoom in on one of those exceeding great and precious promises that we find in the Bible. Now, the longer you live the Christian life, the more you realize the importance of that statement exceedingly great and precious promises because we live by promises that's called faith and hope that is we live our lives day by day as a christian as we go through life storms and difficulties and all that comes and we live with promises these promises give us hope these promises we trust these promises stabilize us We've already talked about that today in some of our songs and prayers. These, these promises are necessary for the mental health of our life. And so I'd like us to look at one of these precious promises. They're, the promise is mentioned here in the New Testament. It finds its roots in the Old Testament. And we'll do our best to expand that promise. And hopefully the Lord will use it in our lives to help us today. Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. He says, Let your conversation be without covetousness. Other translations say, Let your life be without the love of money. And be content with such things as you have. And here's why. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say or say with confidence, The Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now the writer of Hebrews here is, is talking about how we live our lives. He said we should live our life without the love of money. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. So he's talking about your job, your income, the way that you live, your house. And what he is essentially saying is, he says, don't live for the love of money. Don't be materialistic. He is telling us that spiritual people have learned to be happy and content with the things that they have. So why does he tell us this? Why is this commandment so important? Well, it's important because your life is more than things. It's more than stuff. It's more than a job. It's more than income. 
It's more than houses, it's more than cars, it's more than investments, it's more than really nice vacations. Our lives, he is saying, is so much bigger than that. It's not that those things are unimportant, and it's not that those things don't take up a large part of our life, but life is more than that. Life is much bigger than that. So what is our life all about? And it's really found in the opening phrase, and I read from the King James Version, and the reason I wanted to do that was to focus our attention on the word when he says, let your conversation be. Other translations, as I mentioned, says, let your life be, and that's true, both, both words are correct, but the idea of the word conversation is not typical when we talk about our life today. When I say, well, tell me about your life, I don't say, tell me about your conversation. But it was a word that was used to say something, and that is this, that your life actually speaks. Your life says something, even if you don't say anything. Someone has said it this way, our life speaks so loud that people can't hear the words that we're saying. We understand that. It's just human nature. We all, we all I don't want to say judge each other, but we all evaluate one another by the way that we live, by what we do, by the way we act, by the way we react. And the point he is saying is this, that by our lives and through our lives, when we don't love money and we are content, then we are communicating something about our God. Our lifestyle says something or reflects something about our God. And specifically, what is it that we're saying when we are content with the things that we have and we are not living for the love of money? What we are saying is that God is one who always cares for his own. What is the promise that he says in verse 5? For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. It's a promise that he's made. And then he says, as a result of this promise, when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then he says, as a result, so that, that's the result, that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man can do unto me. What he's saying is this, I can live my life with confidence and not fear that God's going to take care of me. Now, everybody in this room understands this emotion because we all have times in our life, God, are you going to take care of me? And we all struggle with fear. And by the way, there's another word for fear in a modern context. You know what that word is? It's called, well, it's actually two words. It's called mental health. How many of you have ever heard of mental, mental health? Okay, it's, 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 a, it's a modern phrase, but it's not a new phrase. Because mental health usually refers to things like anxiety, depression, and loneliness. And at the root of all of those negative emotions is actually fear. Out of anxiety, anxiety comes out of fear. Loneliness comes out of fear. Depression usually comes out of some kind of fear in my life. And so what he is saying is, he's telling you how to have good mental health. How you can live confidently, and without fear in your life, that God is going to provide all of your needs. Why? Because of a promise. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor will I ever forsake thee. So here's what I'd like us to do. Let's take that promise. And let's do what we do on our cell phone when we can't see a picture real clearly and we zoom in on it. I want us to zoom in on this promise in three ways. Number one... What is it actually saying? Number two, what is it actually promising? 
And then number three, how can I be confident or how can I be bold in knowing that this promise is true and worthy of my entire reliance and trust? So let's start, first of all, with what this verse is actually saying. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Now, as we look at it more closely, first of all, we clearly understand who the subject is. For he has said, I will never leave thee. The subject is, in, is referring to God. That's who he is. For he, God, has said, I, God, will never leave you, nor forsake you. So God is making a promise to you and I. Then he tells us two things he says, I will never do. He says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So there are two things he's promising to all of us that he's not going to do. I'm not going to leave you and I'm not going to forsake you. And in the English here, we have two negatives. I will never leave you, nor, there's a second negative, forsake you. So it's, it's a promise coming from the negative. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now, I think you and I all understand that the Bible was not originally written in English. There was no English when the Bible was written. It was written in what language? The New Testament was written in what? It was written in the Greek language. Now, you and I both understand that when you translate a statement from one language to another language, sometimes you don't always get the full meaning or the full emphasis because sometimes you can't translate it directly just as it is. Such is the case in this promise. For he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but when you read it in the Greek, and it is a way of emphasis by Greek writers, that they put a double negative in front of both verbs. It reads this way, I will never, never leave you. I will never, never forsake you. Now, we don't translate it that way because that's not the way we emphasize things. For example, uh, today when we emphasize something, we may write it in bold font. Or we may raise our voices. Or when it was my children, I would point my finger. You understand what I'm saying? In the Greek language, the way they emphasize something emphatically and dogmatically is they would say it twice. Do you remember when Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Why did he say it twice? It's a point of emphasis. So the Greek writer is making a point of dogmatic emphasis. Here's what he is saying. I will never, never leave you. I will never never forsake you. Literally, it reads, I will not not forsake you. I will not not leave you. Now, the two negatives, though they both translate never, never, or not, not, have essentially different ideas to it. The first never is referring, first of all, is, is a statement of fact. It is referring to who God is. Because of who God is, and because of what God promises, he says, I'm never going to leave you. It is a fact. It is an unchanging fact. It is an eternal fact. It is a fact. God says, I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you. But the second never is more of what we call a subjective or experiential or a reality. 
And that is, God will never leave you based on who he is, and God will never leave you based on what he does. Because you know by experience, even if you felt like God was going to leave you, he's never left you. I mean, are you a believer this morning? Do you know Jesus is your personal Savior? So question, in all of your experience, has God ever left you? Now, you may feel at times He is not there, or you may have wondered at times if He is there. You've gone through experiences where you were having to, if I could say it this way, sweat it out. God, are you going to meet that need? God, are you going to provide? God, are you going to work? And you had to wait on the Lord and you experienced that God works by the not method, N-O-T. You know what that stands for? Nick of time. God showed up at the right time. But if you are a child of God, you know that God will never leave you nor forsake you because of your own experiences. So he says, I will never, never leave you. I will never, never forsake you. And one other point about this verse, and that is there is a, what we call a conjunction that connects the two verbs together. And we read it here, it says, I will never leave you nor, that word nor there, are the two Greek words, the two, dub, the two negatives connected together. So here's how it reads. I will never, never leave you, never. I will never, never forsake you. There's five negatives in this statement. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. How many have ever heard of him? He was a famous Baptist preacher that lived, that pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle from about 1850 to the late 1800s. He's the most quoted preacher in modern history. You say, why does everybody quote Spurgeon? Read him and you'll find out. And on this particular text, he preached a sermon, and I'm going to borrow his title. That is not plagiarism. He's been with the Lord now at least 125 years. His sermon title is this. Never, 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 never. You got it? Never, 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 never. God is speaking to us clearly, directly. You cannot miss it. He says, for the child of God, it is a fact and it is a reality. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So that's what he's saying. Now, what then is this verse promising? Let's go a little deeper. He says, I will never, never leave you, and I will never, never forsake you. The word leave there means to let you go. The word forsake there means to leave you behind. So he says, first of all, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you slip away. I'm not going to let you fall away. You know, if a boat is tied to a dock and you don't tie it tight enough with the rope, and the rope becomes loosened, what will the boat usually do? It'll drift away. God says, I'm not going to let you go. My two oldest daughters, when they were really little girls, uh, we were out in Phoenix, Arizona, and my wife said to me, 
can we go to the Grand Canyon? We had a day off. Can we go to the Grand Canyon? Well, I looked on the map from Phoenix to the Grand Canyon. It's about a three-hour drive up to Flagstaff. And from Flagstaff to the Grand Canyon, it's like another two hours. It's like five-hour drive. And I said, sweetheart, that's five hours up there, five hours back, all in one day. It's a long drive. I said, plus there's a big hole in the ground. Who wants to go see that? And my wife used the ultimate form of manipulation on the husband. Well, what about the children? Okay, okay, we'll go. So we drove up there, and it was a long drive, but we were pretty excited about seeing this big hole in the ground. And when I drove into the Grand Canyon National Park, you're sort of looking for the Grand Canyon. I mean, it is pretty big, but the problem is you can't see it because it goes down. And when you finally get to a place where you can park on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, they got all these parking lots, you get out and you see people walking towards the edge, but still you can't get a good picture of it because it goes down. And my girls jumped out of our truck and they started running. And I started running after them. And I grabbed both of their hands and I squeezed it so tight. They said, Daddy, you're hurting my hand. I said, yes, but I don't want you to get hurt because we came up to that grand edge of that grand canyon. How many of you have ever seen it? Okay. Oh, a lot of you have. Now you know the feeling, right? And you come up and you look out at this vast expanse. You're on the south rim. The other side of the north rim is 15 miles away. And you're looking down a mile all the way down to the, uh, to the river, the uh, Colorado River down there. And you're looking at it. And the first thing I said is, wow, what a hole. <laughs> But one thing I was not going to do is I was not going to let go of my children's hands. Okay? If God is your father and you are his child, he is not going to let you go. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I've learned something in my own Christian experience. Even if I drift away from God, even if I want to go into sin, God is still not going to let me go. That is his promise. Then notice the second promise. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The word forsake means to leave behind. The motto of the U.S. Marines is no man left behind. God is not going to leave you behind. When I began in the ministry of evangelism back in 1985, it was probably my second year, 1986, we were, we held a service early one morning and boy, it's raining, isn't it? I'm glad we didn't get that rain coming in this morning. Amen. The Lord's perfect timing. We had held a meeting that morning at a Baptist church in London, Ontario, Canada, Sunday morning. And we were scheduled to hold a service Sunday night in Detroit, Michigan. It wasn't a long drive, maybe three hours. The only maybe slowdown was you had to cross the Canadian border into Port Huron, Michigan. Back in those days, I was traveling with four college graduates we were traveling in an automobile, and then my wife and family and I were traveling in our fifth wheel truck and trailer. That was back in the days before cell phones. 
contrary to some of your knowledge, there actually was a day when in history we didn't have cell phones. And we traveled by an old-fashioned method of travel called maps. Have you ever heard of maps? And so we pulled up to the Canadian border and I couldn't see the car behind me. And I was concerned because going through Port Huron was a little tricky because we had to get on the interstate to go down to Detroit. I was concerned that our group wouldn't know where to go and they would get lost. And I kept looking for them. I didn't see them. I knew they were behind me. And I said to my wife, sweetheart, I think they're right behind me. Would you mind just jumping out? And I'll pull through, and when the car comes through, you jump in with them. I'm going to go down and get on the interstate and wait for you guys. So that's exactly what we did. She jumped out. I went down, got on the interstate, and I waited for them for one hour, and I never saw them. Well, I didn't have a phone. I didn't know how to call anybody, and, you know, everything was a really good guess. So I drove down to the church, pulled in the church parking lot, and there was no car there. And it was about 30 minutes before the service was to start. And about 10 minutes later, the car pulled up into the parking lot. I said, thank the Lord. And everybody got out but my wife. And I said to them, where is my wife? And they said, your wife. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, she had been left behind at the Canadian border. Well, fortunately, we found my wife the next day. Remember, please remember, <laughs> there was no cell phone. There was no way to communicate. We did not know what to do. And when we finally found her, she was at a hotel that she had walked to and stayed in. And from that point forward until my father-in-law passed away, almost 10 years later, every time my wife would call my father-in-law, he would say, well, where did he leave you now? <laughs> the writer of Hebrews makes us a promise. He's not going to leave you behind. By the way, in death, he's not going to leave you behind. In life, he's not going to leave you behind. And the writer of Hebrews wanted it to be really, really clear and emphatic. For not only did he use five double, not only did he use five negatives, never, 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 never. But he took the phrase, for he will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And actually, it comes from five Old Testament promises. And he squeezes them together into one statement. That first promise is found in Genesis 28 and verse 15, where Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau for fear of his life. And God meets him at a place called Bethel in a vision and gives him a promise that will carry him throughout the whole of his life. For he says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God is not going to leave you or forsake you. He uses it secondly in Deuteronomy 31.6, when Moses encourages the entire nation of Israel not to be afraid 
of the future enemies they'll face in battle. For he says, be strong and of a good courage, fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, it is he that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. He uses it a third time in Joshua 1 and verse 5. For Moses had died and now the mantle of leadership falls on Joshua. I mean, let's be honest, for 40 years he had followed Moses. Life was good. No, it wasn't easy, but it was good. Why? Because you got, you got Moses who's leading and now he's gone. And listen to what God says. He says, be he says, there shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And then we find it in 1 Chronicles 28, 20, where David charges his son Solomon at the end of his life. And David speaks of what he himself had proved to be true by his own experience. He says to Solomon, be strong and of a good courage and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee will be with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. And then the fifth time he says it in Isaiah 41, 17. He is speaking to those who are downtrodden, crushed under life's burdens, without resources, even like water. And notice what he says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue faileth for, fur, for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. So here's what God does. He takes those five Old Testament promises. And by the way, the Old Testament is the New Testament enfolded. And the New Testament is the Old Testament unfolded. They both go together. What God is like in the Old Testament, He is revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God revealed Himself on Mount Sinai. And He said that He was a God of mercy and faithfulness. In John chapter 1, the believers said, And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only God, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It's not that the law is the opposite of grace and truth. It is only a, it is, if I could say it this way, it is a, a, a smaller unveiling when it's completely veiled in Christ. This is what the New Testament promises are. They're the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And here's what God is saying. He's taken all of those verses and he has squeezed them together. And he is saying, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. When you're lonely, he's not going to leave you or forsake you. When you're helpless, he is not going to leave you or forsake you. When you are friendless, he is not going to leave you or forsake you. When you are hopeless, he is not going to leave you or forsake you. He will not forsake you because he is your father. He will not forsake you because you are his bride. He will not forsake you because you are part of his body. He will not forsake you because he started a building in your life and he will finish what he has begun. This is a fact and we know this is a reality. Let me ask you a question. Has he ever forsaken you in your past? When you went through deep waters, did you drown? When you walked through the fire, were you consumed? When you faced six troubles, 
Did he forsake you in the seventh trouble? God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Nothing in your past, nothing in your present, and nothing in your future. No man can separate you from God's love. No angel can separate you from God's love. And no devil can separate you from God's love. This is his promise. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So what should we do? We should embrace it. We should believe it. We should pray it. We should rest upon it. We should say it. And we should testify of it. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's his promise. Now that leads me to the last point. And that is this. How can we be confident that this is true and worth our believing? In other words, how can we be bold about it? Is that not what he said? So that we may boldly say? Now, when you think of somebody that's fearful and somebody that's bold, what comes to your mind? When you think of somebody with confidence, what is, it, what is, what is your thought process? How can we be confident? How can we go, yes, absolutely, no questions? How can I say it confidently? And I think there's a very simple answer. And that is this, because there was one who was forsaken by his father. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, the first words out of his mouth is the statement, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken on the cross by his own father for a reason. He was forsaken on the cross so that you would not be forsaken by the father. For on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered, bled, and died for your sins to pay for your sins, to redeem you from your own iniquities, to deliver you from your own transgressions. He was forsaken on the cross for you so that you can boldly and confidently say, I will never be forsaken by the Father because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. That was an Old Testament quotation, Psalm 22 and verse 1, when Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it was fulfilled in the death of Jesus when he died on the cross. So how can I boldly say I will never be forsaken? Because the Son was forsaken for me on the cross. But there's something else I want to say. Though Jesus was forsaken by the Father on the cross... He was not forsaken by the Father in the tomb. And in Psalm chapter 16 and verse 9, God made a promise to His Son. Let me read it to you. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. That is an Old Testament promise written by King David concerning the coming Holy One or the Messiah. Now let me read to you that exact same verse quoted by 
Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 27, on the day of Pentecost, when he preached a sermon and 3,000 people got saved, and he said, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, what was Peter doing? He was quoting that verse to show that God fulfilled his promise when he resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. And the phrase, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, the word leave is the exact same word in Hebrews for forsake. The word hell is not what we would consider to be hell. It's referring to the grave, Sheol. So he says, I am not going to abandon or forsake my holy one in the grave. Now watch this. Neither wilt thou suffer, neither wilt thou permit your holy one to see corruption. Now what is he saying here? He is saying that the Messiah will go to a grave. But God is not going to forsake him because he's not going to allow him to, he's not going to permit him to see decomposition. What is he talking about? He's talking about somebody who dies and he resurrects from the dead. That is exactly what Peter was quoting when he quoted Psalm 16 and verse 9 in the book of Acts. And what he is simply is saying is this, that though the Son was forsaken on the cross for our sins, the Son was not forsaken by the Father in the tomb because God raised him from the dead. So question, my dear friend, how can we be confident that God's promise is true and worthy of our believing so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man can do unto me. The reason I can say that is because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus died and Jesus rose. And when I got saved, I was baptized into Him. And because I am in Him and the Son was not forsaken in the tomb, God will never leave me. And God will never forsake me. Or as Spurgeon said it, never, 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 never. That is a promise that he gives all of us this morning. And may God grant us grace to believe it and hold to it. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your promises. <clears throat> we know, Lord, they are eternal. They are unchanging. They reveal your character. And Lord, help us to believe them. Increase our faith, Lord. Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. And Lord, help us to grow and to trust you. Guard our faith, Lord. Protect us. Keep us from the evil one who will want to destroy our faith and sift us as wheat. Help us to be strong, bold, and confident. And we thank you for your precious word. I pray for everyone in this building, Lord, who needed to hear this, that they will hold on to these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.